I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And if there's one icon in Europe that you think of as far as an attraction, it's got to be the Eiffel Tower. I mean, an 18,000-piece erector set, 2.5 million rivets, 60 tons of paint, built back when they couldn't imagine something so tall. And even today, 120 years later, it just takes your breath away. We're talking about Eiffel Tower today. We're, we're talking with Jill Jones, who's written a book called Eiffel's Tower that looks at the construction of this in the historic and social context as this was built back in 1889. Jill Jones, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Take us back in your book, Eiffel's Tower, to the year 1889. Why was the Eiffel Tower built in 1889? Give us the, the context here. So the French Republic uh, had had a number of rocky decades. They were surrounded by monarchies, and they wanted to make the point that democracy and self-made people were really superior. And so they decided to hold this 100th anniversary World's Fair celebrating the downfall of the Bastille. And the French had actually been doing these fairs for quite a while, and they had a genius for them. But they needed a very spectacular centerpiece, and they held a contest, and Gustave Eiffel, who was a self-made millionaire railway bridge designer and builder with a global empire, came up with uh, some in-house architects with this spectacular design. This is the 100th anniversary of the falling of the Bastille. That means they cut the head of the French uh, king and queen off, and it was the beginning of the Republic. Is that right? So they're reminding Correct. people, this is a, the world's great democracy. And you pronounced his name Eiffel? Eiffel. Or well, Eiffel. that's the French. I, that's we the would French. say Eiffel. Yes. Eiffel. Okay, so if you're talking to a French person, Eiffel. In any case, so they needed a very spectacular centerpiece, and uh, Eiffel's Tower was going to be it for a variety of reasons foremost because it was going to be the tallest structure in the world, a 1,000 feet tall. And just to put that in context for the time, the tallest building up until then was the Washington Monument at 555 feet tall. So this was really almost double almost the height. Almost double. And of course, it was a radically different design, so radical that it was in fact loathed by the French intelligentsia and the artists and architects of the time who wrote this, I mean, in retrospect, very hilarious letter denouncing the tower as a hideous blot and factory chimney. And the the phrase in the letter I always loved was, not even commercial America would have it. Oh, my goodness. What an insult. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I heard that one leading writer actually made a point to eat in the Eiffel Tower so he wouldn't have to look at it during lunch. That was, yes, Guy de Maupassant. In fact, so all these artists and architects and painters, very famous painters, denounced the Eiffel Tower and tried to derail the project with no success. And afterwards, all of them ate their words because, in fact, as the tower rose in Belle Epoque, Paris, it was obvious to everyone that this was a really beautiful, mathematically gorgeous building. I mean, it even had an effect on fashion, didn't it? You write about Eiffel Red. And that's actually something I, I don't know the reason for this. I don't know why the Eiffel Tower is not the red that it was when it was first built. And it was red at the bottom. And then as it progressed skyward, the paint color got more and more yellow. If anyone out there knows why the Eiffel Tower today is this, in my opinion, somewhat kind of dreary gray, I'd love to know. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Jill Jones, who's written a book called Eiffel's Tower, taking us back to 1889 when this incredible structure was was put up in Paris, became the icon of Europe. Uh, Jennifer's on the line in San Francisco. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Yes, uh, you you mentioned at the beginning that, uh, and I certainly agree with you, that the Eiffel Tower is an icon and that it takes your breath away. And it's well known that it it, uh, did the same thing for the French. They were also left breathless upon first sight of the Eiffel Tower, but because they were horrified, (laughs) sadly, but yes, you know, as as people will be to to something so new and and modern for its day. And I'm wondering if, uh, for Ms. Jones, if any of the famous Americans whose story you chronicle in your book, did any of them have similar reactions of just disgust and indignation, or, or was the reaction really wholly favorable? The Americans were enormously jealous. Uh, the the whole idea of a thousand foot tower came from first British and then American engineers, and so when the French were the ones who carried this off, um, all the Americans who came to the World's Fair, which is what the tower was built for, their reaction to it was twofold. One, they were going to build a much taller tower. Thomas Edison was one of the Americans who came to the fair, and his presence caused a great sensation. But he would say, well, we will build the tower, but 2,000 feet, twice better. That was very much the the attitude, that Americans were going to build a much bigger tower. Now, interestingly, there was not a taller building than the Eiffel Tower until the Chrysler Building was completed in 1929. So Eiffel Hmm. died at a very ripe old age, and his structure was still the tallest building the world. For 40 years. That's quite astounding when you think of all the progress that happened in that next generation or two. The thing that the Americans um, assuaged themselves with is that one of the elevators in the Eiffel Tower, the most complicated and difficult one that had to go from the ground through the curved leg to the second floor, was an Otis elevator. And the fact that this was an American company was always mentioned by the Americans Mm. (laughs) to uh, make themselves feel better about the fact that Another country had beaten them uh, by having the tallest building. But we well, we contributed the elevator. I love, Jill, how you talk about the stress Eiffel was under as they were rushing to complete this elevator in time for opening day of the World's Fair, and they didn't quite make it. And uh, I could just see Eiffel thinking, we've got to get this elevator up and running. Hey, Jill, when I think about the uh, age that the Eiffel Tower was made in 1889, it's sort of the industrial age. And my understanding was you'd lay out your inventory, and you'd have it all ordered, and all the inventory, all your girders and your rivets and everything would come on schedule. You'd build it on schedule, and they even had a plan to take it down, I think, on schedule, didn't they? It was originally planned to stay up just for 20 years, and and then they would take it down and clap their hands, and it would be a done deal. Well, what happened was originally the French government was going to pay the full cost. They reneged, leaving Eiffel with only a million of the francs that he needed of the five million francs. So he was a very successful businessman, and he managed to raise that remaining four million francs. But the condition was that the tower would stay up for 20 years so he could recoup his investment. Well, in fact, by the time the fair was over in November of 1889, after six months, he had already recouped his investment. So the tower was very profitable. But the real thing for Eiffel was he took huge pride in this creation. And so from the time the tower went up, the big challenge was how could he make sure it never came back down? And he Hmm. was, uh, I think he was a genius. 
Talk about the practical uses that he came up with. He was quite defensive about the tower because many people kept on describing it as being useless and what was the point of it and so forth. And so from the very beginning, he was using it to study weather. And he had all these rooms on the very pinnacle of the tower that were given over to scientists who did all kinds of astronomical investigations and they studied the sun and the winds and so forth. But what saved the tower was the minute radio became a new form of communication, Eiffel spent his own money to have radio installed at the very top of the tower and then invited the French military to make use of this. And it didn't take that long before the military realized that strategically this was very handy. And so in the end, I mean, that was what saved the tower. So Marconi saved the tower. Yes. And did it have a practical use in World War I, as it turned out, as France was fighting for its very existence? There are many charming stories attached to the tower, and one was that the radio equipment intercepted a message from the Germans saying that they couldn't move forward with their cavalry because they did not have enough hay to feed their horses. So uh, that enabled the French then to move their own armies around in a way they hadn't uh, been planning to that helped save Paris. Wow. Fascinating. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring the history of Eiffel's Tower uh, with Jill Jones, who's just written a book called Eiffel's Tower. Uh, The subtitle of the book is In the World's Fair Where Buffalo Bill Beguiled Paris, the Artists Quarreled, and Thomas Edison Became a Count. You know, Jill, when when you write your book, it's not only about the Eiffel Tower, it's about how the world came together to celebrate the dawn of the modern age, I think, at the Great World's Fair in Paris in 1889. And it was a coming together of uh, both the uh, traditional, you know, cowboys and Buffalo Bill Cody and uh, Annie Oakley, and then people who were um, sort of looking into the future. Thomas Edison saw this as a great opportunity to introduce his phonograph to Europe. Uh, Why did you splice in Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill and Thomas Edison with Gustav Eiffel? Well, because they were all there very much as really was Eiffel, to promote their own agendas. The whole idea of these World's Fairs was to bring to those who came to them, and I believe 36 million people attended the Paris Fair of 1889. And so one of the things that's really charming about this fair is these unlikely crossings of the paths. And if you just want to look only at the Eiffel Tower, when Thomas Edison came to Paris. He had never been to Europe. He got off the boat. He says, I'm here like everyone else to see the Eiffel Tower. And within the day, he goes off to the Eiffel Tower. And who does he encounter at the very top but Buffalo Bill's Indians, the Sioux Indians, who were there visiting the tower like everyone else. I mean, it's just such an unlikely crossings of the past. 1889, (laughs) top of the Eiffel Tower, (laughs) Buffalo Bill and his Indians meets Thomas Alva Edison. Yes. And Gustav Eiffel tips his little top hat. Well, and then, of course, Eiffel was yearning to meet Thomas Edison and vice versa. And so they had a very elegant lunch uh, with many engineers, after which... Eiffel invited Edison and his wife and daughter and his entourage to ascend to the top where Eiffel had a very elegant apartment. And if you go to the top of the Eiffel Tower today, and I just did this in June of this year, you will see there's a very small part of the apartment that is still preserved, and you can look through a a thick piece of glass. And there are these mannequins, one of Edison, one of Eiffel, and then the phonograph, because, of course, everywhere Edison went, he took a phonograph and presented it. 
And that mm. phonograph is, I assume it's the same photograph, it's, is still there. And the very famous composer Gounod happened to also be on the tower that day. And Eiffel said, well, come on up with us and, and why don't you entertain us? Because Eiffel had a baby grand piano in his apartment. And so you just have to envision this kind of wonderful, unlikely people together. So Eiffel, Edison, and then Gounod playing the piano and serenading uh, them and all the engineers. At what level on the Eiffel Tower is the piano? The very pinnacle. Well, I, I don't believe it's there anymore. They the carried very top. the grand piano up to the very top. That's like 1,500 steps, I think. I'm guessing they did it up. with a crane. <laughs> That's well, amazing. Oh. <laughs> but the Eiffel Tower to this day brings people together. You know, we've had so many emails from people. I just got to read some of these emails because the Eiffel Tower just resonates with people in our year just as much as uh, 120 years ago. Rachel in Lakeside, California wrote, My happy place is beneath the Eiffel Tower. I like to stand beneath it right in the middle and gaze up into its magnificence. It symbolizes everything I dreamed about as a child and more. I will continue to return, gaze up, and smile. I can relate to Rachel standing right there in the in the middle of it below. Charles in uh, Carlsbad wrote uh, in California, My mom was a great teacher and a friend to many music students over decades. At one point in her early life, when I was just a boy, she owned a lending library and became an armchair travel with a special love for Paris. She would not travel, but on our 14th visit to the City of Lights, that's Paris, a month or so after she passed away, I placed her ashes under the Eiffel Tower, where I'm sure her spirit lingers even today. So people who even haven't been there aspire to, to, to go to the Eiffel Tower. Kathleen in Girard, Ohio writes, My three daughters and I visited the Eiffel Tower on our first visit to Paris in the summer of 2008. When we returned in the evening to see the tower lighting, we were surprised to see so many people gathered in the park. There was a festival-like atmosphere with young people playing frisbee, couples frolicking, a number of people growing exponentially as the lighting time drew near. When the tower was lit, it began to sparkle with an amazing, shimmering beauty, and then transformed from a brilliant gold to a gorgeous blue, and the thousands of people around us began to cheer. We were enchanted and enthralled. Leaving the park later that night, we overheard that the lighting had been a special event celebrating France's term as head of the European Union. My daughters and I will always treasure that memory of the Eiffel Tower, stunning in its stark intricacy in the daylight and breathtaking in the shimmering glamour of its extraordinary nighttime brilliance. The exuberant cheers of the French people and their guests still ringing in our ears. Viva la France! Boy, you must have experienced that, Joe, when you were writing this book, the, uh, the power of the Eiffel Tower, even today, for people to have magical experiences as they visit Paris. Well, I think one of the things that, that is so special about the Eiffel Tower is how playful it is. I mean, I, I really thought about this quite a bit. It's the only structure that I can think of where you can both be inside it and outside it at the same time because of the way you can go up the steps. And people do really experience the Eiffel Tower because they're on it and they're in the elements. So whatever is happening with the weather, you're experiencing that. And then yet you can go inside. I mean, there are restaurants and gift shops and what have you. And there's just this excitement and playfulness with all the crowds and the different nationalities and people growing up and people going down. And then there's often these events. I mean, I think almost any time you go to the Eiffel Tower, something is happening there. And that's very much the way they want it to be. So I was there when I was working on this book, and they were having skateboarding in the middle of the Eiffel Tower. So it, it's always just this very lively place. There is a quality of play to the tower itself that I think really speaks to people and is why we are so attached to it, even though it's 120 years old. It does not feel old at all. I think it's timeless in the way it connects 
to people as a piece of architecture. You know, it really does have that chance to put you in the elements. Josie from Long Beach, California, emailed us, and she says, The day we went to the top of Eiffel's Tower, a short but intense thunderstorm rolled through Paris. They were letting people go down but not come up. Those of us who stayed had an awesome, wet, and windy experience. <laughs> I can imagine that, looking out over the gleaming mansart rooftops of Paris and those sparkling golden domes and being high above it all on Eiffel's Tower, that celebration of what humankind can do at the dawn of the modern age. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Jill Jones, who's written a a fascinating book called Eiffel's Tower. Jill, take us back to the Eiffel Tower one more time. You must have had so much fun delving into this. Well, the thought that I have been left with, uh, having spent a few years working on the Eiffel Tower, is that once you become a fan of the Eiffel Tower, you realize that you see it almost every day somewhere. It's so famous. It's so iconic. I've gotten into this habit with my husband. I say, oh, there's my Eiffel Tower for the day because it's so woven into the fabric of our society. It's such a symbol of glamour and romance and, of course, of France that um, I began to realize that it was there on the dry cleaners canopy, that it's in movies, it's in books. Every day I feel as if pretty much I see the Eiffel Tower. And, of course, you always just get a little frisson of joy from that. It's a part of the experience of being human on this planet. 245 million people have climbed this tower, and that resonates across the globe. Jill Jones, author of Eiffel's Tower, congratulations on a fascinating book, and thanks so much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me. Merci beaucoup et bon voyage. (laughs) 